0: Good morning again everybody. Long time no see. Um, thank you again for being with us this morning. We're, we're continuing our, our preaching series this morning. Uh, this summer we're actually coming to the end of it as we take a little break from the gospel according to John, the invisible made visible. And we've been asking the question over the last several weeks, um, did God really say that? You can probably see it in the signs and up, on, up here. We've asked it so far five times. We've asked, God, is it true that God said that he will not give us more than we can handle? We've asked, is it true that God helps those who help themselves? Is it true that God wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy? Is it true that we are all God's children? And then last week, Pastor Lou preached and answered the question, is it true that God said that bad things happen to good people? So you've missed a week Um, then I I would definitely encourage you to go online. You can find uh, the the, the sermons, the past sermons, on our website. You can also find it on our podcast. But um, this morning, we're going to ask the question again. We're going to ask, did God really say that? reported last week, Tad tried to while shooting a stunt in a scene for his next movie. Today, thousands gathered for his funeral at the Staples Center to mourn his loss. We have an exclusive interview with one of his biggest fans, Stan Collins. Stan, how are you holding up tonight I don't know if you like, but this morning, I lost America's lost phenomenal. Tad McPherson has only been in the spotlight for a short time. What drew you to him? Well, he was just a, a great actor and a great person. His, uh, his Christian faith was uh, something that grew me towards him and wanted me to learn more about him. He's just just a, just a wonderful person. If you could encourage Tad fans everywhere, what would you tell them? I tell Tad fans that, you know, he might not be in any movies anymore. on the a sort of just uh, eating another angel. So when you die, God gains another angel. Is that true? Did God really say that? Before I go any further, I want to go ahead and dismiss the kids to uh, children's church this morning. We're thankful for that uh, for that ministry. The kids also get to hear uh, and worship Jesus too. Hear about the gospel. So we praise God for that. So when you die. Is it true that God gains another angel? Well, it's a pretty fairly common expression you might hear in our culture uh, nowadays, and it usually happens, you probably hear it, maybe even use it yourself, when in the midst of a tragedy, you know, when, when someone that you know, someone that you love has, has died, maybe a friend, a family member, someone that you were close with, someone that, that the person who's saying is close with, and we use it as a, as a kind of a, a, a coping mechanism, right? And by that, I mean that we, we try to bring a little bit of s- a sense of comfort to an uncomfortable situation, an uncomfortable scenario in reality, which is that the reality of death. And it's one way among, among many ways that we do it as, as, as people, as humans. We don't like death. We fear death. If you spotlight any, any of the world religions, you'll see that they all have a different way of handling death, telling you what happens after death or what doesn't happen after death. Um... There's, so there's lots of different perspectives that we have about what happens after death, what that looks like. And while the statement this morning sounds maybe plausible, it sounds spiritual, maybe it sounds Christian. I mean, it says we, we're mentioning God in it, it mentioned angels in it. They're in the, both in the Bible. I mean, that sounds like it might be plausible. Uh, it sounds like it might be a little Christian, but really what it comes down to is the fact that it's, it's actually completely wrong. And, that, and that's what we want to we want to talk about this morning. Is that uh, it's and it's wrong for a number of reasons. There's a number of reasons why this is wrong. For one, humans and angels are distinctly different creatures. Okay, and that's and that's eternally so. But God made God made human beings, and He also made angels, both for the for the purpose of glorifying Him, all right? by celebrating His infinite worth, and and by proclaiming His excellencies. And, 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 and the fact that he is over and above everything and he's worthy of worship, right? So in that sense, both the same, but there are many different ways in which we're both different. Humans and, and, and angels are markedly different. There's another reason why that's actually wrong is it because it actually is at odds with what scripture says happens immediately following death. And then thirdly, probably for the hap, perhaps the, the worst way in which it's, it's, it's wrong is that it promotes a false hope. It, and that it, 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 it comes woefully short of explaining what our glorious hope is as believers. That our, our sure confidence in this life is, is in God's promises of, of eternal life with him. And, and, and the comforts, and that is what comforts. That's, that's what ought to bring us comfort in times of, of trials and suffering. That, that promotes endurance. Even when we're at the, the point in which we're, we're facing death, we're in the very throes of death, death itself. So you can probably see the way that I've already answered that question for a little problems with that, with that statement, I'm, I should say, is you can see the direction that we're going to be traveling to, in together this morning. And that my hope is that we'll, we'll handle the statement in the best way that we can, the best possible way, which is, which is in light of what Scripture says, in light of what, what God really did say. Because at the end of the day, it really matters what we believe. It, 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 truth really matters, Okay? And it matters what we believe, what happens after death, because as, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of our, as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. So a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Ricky hit on uh, the marvelous truth of the adoption of as sons and daughters of God, that we were once children of wrath because of sin, uh, and now we've, we are inheritors uh, with Jesus as an adoption, as a son and daughter of God. And what I want to point out is, that is the fact that, that that fact itself directly ties in to the fact that we will have resurrected bodies, and that our resurrection essentially completes or fulfills in, in its entirety that adoption process. And that's what I want to point out this morning. So understanding this truth is also important because it attests to the magnificence and the multidimensional aspects of the redemption that God has in store for all of his creation, and including his, his very people, the people that he has brought to himself. So I want to see that this morning, that the God's plan of redemption, the plan that's, that's actually unfolding before us and in our hearts that God has, has brought us into, is holistic That and to to expect anything less or or to accept anything less really is to misunderstand the very gospel that saves us. So this morning, I want to take this statement and I want to approach it under three headings. What we're like, what angels are like, and then lastly, what happens after death. So first of all, let's explore together what we're like. Okay? You might not know this, um, but the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis that opens our, our scriptures, the word of God um, is actually written in a poetic format uh, and that j- for, for, I'm not sure that how that makes, makes you feel. I love the fact that it's written poetry. I think, when I think about well, we lose a little bit of the sense of that in our, in our English translation, but when I think about that fact, it, it actually makes me think what better way to describe God's, God's um, magnificent Creative uh, design and, the, and, and 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 seeing it unfolding, what better way to describe that than in poetry format? So in these in these, two, in these uh, first two chapters, we see we get a glimpse into God's masterful design. Right, we see Him go from uh, separating light and dark, creating and separating light lightness and darkness. And then we see, see him go to um, increasingly complex color schemes and textures. Right? I'm t- speaking as one who's been watching a lot of design shows on TV. You can probably hear that coming out. Um, so in, these, in different colors and textures, and then we see the expanse of, of, the, of God's uh, the, the sky and the water, and, and, and we start to see some flowering vegetation. We start to see some creeping things on the earth and swimming under the oceans and, and flying above us. And, and then... Um, in fact, the more that we, we look at God's creation and, and we see it, um, the more we can actually see its magnificence. We can see God's handiwork there, his imprint on everything. And the Psalms, which are also written in poetry form, a lot of them have this as their topic. You know, they, they, they talk about the splendors of God's creation. Um, my, one of my favorites is Psalm chapter 8, which I have up there this morning. And I, uh, I definitely wholeheartedly have you bookmark that and read that later. But listen to these, these lyrics that, that King David wrote in Psalm chapter 8, verse second. <laughs> he says, he writes, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. And he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea that that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Isn't that just a beautiful image? I hope that you catch that. And, And you can see how David points out the splendors of creation, of nature, and finds reason to praise God. But I also want to point out that he also marvels at the fact that the Almighty God gives attention to, to, to humans, to man and women. And that men and women are not lost in the, in the great expanse of creation. But in fact, the Bible itself teaches that man is that crowning jewel, the pinnacle of God's physical creation. And that only men and women share in the Imago Dei, which is... The, that, that word that we use that, to describe um, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And that comes from Genesis chapter one. That's not something that is just made up, but that is what God Himself says. And he says in Genesis chapter one, So um, Genesis 1:26 or28, it says, "Then God said, "Let us make man in, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock." and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. and the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God himself says, what does it mean? Well, simply put, it means that we are made to uniquely reflect our creator. So even though that we are sinners and, and, and we suffer the devastating consequences of sin, that, including death itself, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, is that even though we see the consequence of sin on our earth and plagues the earth, we still bear the image of God. It, has not, it hasn't been lost. It's been distorted, certainly, but it's not been entirely lost. And, and we could talk about there are many different ways in which we, we share God's attributes. We, we can see um, that we reflect his nature uh, and his likeness. And what, theologically speaking, those are called the communicable attributes of God. And just, what that just means is that we sh- there, there are ways in which we share God's characteristics that he's given us, as opposed to the incommunicable attributes, which is another way of saying that those are the things that, that God has in, in his nature that we don't reflect, like his omnipotence, omnipotence, his omniscience, meaning uh, he, he knows everything. His omnipresence, he's not limited by space, but he, he, he can, he's everywhere and can see everything all, uh, at one time. Over, we see his sovereignty in which he has power over his creation that we don't have so those are some ideas in which we don't share God's image but what are some that what are those attributes of God that we, those characters that, that we do have in common with God because he's made us in his image well there's a there's a large large list that we could look at but I only wanted to talk about four of them this morning because I think that they are the ones that we're going to be going to help us as we go through this statement this morning as we pull it apart and that is number one that being made in the image of God means that, in that we are image bearers of God, is that we all have, we all possess dignity, value, and worth. And, if, and that, if, and really, when you think about it, that fact alone, ought, should annihilate any hatred, any type of ra- uh, hatred, race, whether it be racism, sexism, any other kind of hatred, from the minds and hearts of the believer. Amen. Right? When we, when we see people around us, and we see them through the eyes of God as image bearers of God, they have dignity, value, and worth, that should cause us to look at them in a very different way than, than we typically do, than, than the world looks at them. And that, and that we should extend love and grace to those, just as we have been extended love and grace by God. And it also should anger us when we, when we see people being treated like animals, being, being treated as being inferior, or when we see women object, objectified. Or when we see babies in the womb being, being murdered because they're inconvenient. That should anger us because we, we should see them as valuable and dignified and having worth that God himself has placed on all people. And so there, you can see there are very many practical aspects of, of just that one point itself that we all have dignity, value, and worth. And, let that, and it should be a truth that, lets, that guides us as believers as we seek to live on mission, right? As we th- and we think about it it should propel us into mission toward people, toward meeting their needs and suffering and coming, coming to their aid or defense when they, when they, when they need it. So I want you to think about that this week, especially in community groups, think about some practical ways in which understanding that we are image bearers of God and we have value and dignity and worth, what that should look like, how, how that should operate, uh, how we should operate in light of that fact. And if you're not a Christian this morning, then let that also be an encouragement to you that God sees you as having dignity, having value, and having worth. And, and that he loves you more than you actually realize it. And that he does not want you to stay in your sin. He doesn't want you to stay in your relationlessness from him. He wants to have a relationship with you. Pastor Tim Keller put it this way, talking about the good news of the gospel. He says that we are sinful and flawed in and ourselves, more than we ever dared to believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the gospel. So, another way in which we reflect the, the image and uh, likeness of God is in morality. And Romans chapter 1 talks about this. I'm not gonna, we don't have time to go into this morning of that passage of scripture, but let it suffice it to say that um, we were created in, with knowledge that God exists and that the creation itself is the manifest witness of his eternal power and his nature and because of that we have, and because of the fact that we have a sense of right and wrong as well that's been given to us because of that very fact that we, we are therefore accountable to God and, and accountable to his laws instead though unfortunately because of the curse of sin we now go after and seek after anything other than God and, and what we do is we uh, we put anything over him and rather seeking to live out of uh, his glory and for his glory alone. Thirdly, spirituality. And how we, how we reflect this is that God himself is spirit. Jesus says very plainly in, in John four twenty four, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So like God, there, we do have a spiritual dimension to our personality, to our personhood, that God is an immaterial being, he's, that he's not limited to space and time. We're not in the same way. We have physicality, but there's a, there's a, there's a part of us, that non-physical part of us called the soul or called the spirit that's, that, that houses um, our personalities, that houses um, our, uh, uh, our emotions and so forth, and our volition, our will, and that will outlast our bodies. As Jesus says in Matthew 10:20, just one scripture gives evidence that, He says, "Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell." So we see that Jesus is making it clear that there is a body and a soul, and that we should not fear those who can, ta- who can kill our body, but for, the per- but for the one, God Himself, who is sovereign over body and soul. So we are spiritual, and that is a dimension of the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And then fourthly, this, might, this one might surprise you a little bit. It surprised me this week as I was studying. But even our physicality, the fact that we are physical beings, also uh, reflects the fact that we are made in God's image. And I want to be careful here because I'll have to explain this one. I just said God is spirit and that he's not physical. And, and I want to definitely say that again, that that's absolutely true. He is, God himself does not have physicality. Jesus has a body you we know, because of the incarnation and he was in his resurrected body. But God the Father, God the Spirit, they do not have bodies. They're spiritual. But I learned something very interesting in that our bodies were actually created for the purpose of exercising particular functions and particular activities that actually reflect our creator. And you say, well, how is that, how's that true? Well, Wayne Grudem does a great job illustrating this point. He says, quote, for example, our physical bodies give us the ability to see with our eyes. This is a godlike quality because God himself sees, and he sees far more than we will ever see, although he does not see with physical eyes like we have. Our ears give us the ability to hear, and this is a godlike ability, even though God does not have physical ears. Our mouths give us the ability to speak, reflecting that God is a God who speaks, our senses of touch, taste, and smell, they all give us uh, the understanding and en- to enjoy God's creation, reflecting that God himself understands and he enjoys his creation, though in a far greater sense than we do. Our bodies, therefore, have been created by God as suitable instruments to represent in a physical way our human nature, which has been made to be like God's own nature, end quote. So physicality is itself, it's a good thing, it's a good thing that, because God calls it good in Genesis chapter one and our bodies are made actually to glorify God. In Romans chapter one, it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, which is your spiritual worship. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He goes on to say, so there we can see an example um, of, of how our physical bodies can be used to glorify God. And that should be an encouragement to us this morning, that we can, because of what God has done, he's empowered us by his grace, by his Holy Spirit, to live a life uh, with our bodies that can worship and glorify God. And that doesn't happen apart from the spirit necessarily in this life. Like I said, we are a unification of, of a spiritual and, 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 a, and a material personhood together. So we, we together as an entire person can glorify God and worship God not as a way of earning his grace, but as a response to the grace that God has given us in the gospel. So these are just a few examples in which we, we bear the image and likeness of God, the Imago Dei, and that God has made us distinctly different from his creation. And, it's, and I'm gonna point out that, it's, it's that we are distinctly different from both the physical creation that we see and also the spiritual things, that, 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 that spiritual realm that we can't empirically perceive. Like angels, for instance, and that brings us to the next point, which is what are angels like? So earlier we read in Psalm chapter eight that we are a little lower than the angels. What does that mean what What are angels exactly, and how can we as human beings different from them, how can we relate to angels? Well, first of all, I want to point out that you 're not going to find it a definitive answer in one place in scripture that, that details how angels were created, what they are, what their activities are, the history of angels. You're not gonna find one place we can go to. Rather, what we find is throughout scripture, peppered throughout, we're gonna, we can find, we bring those all together as a collective, then we can kind of get a glimpse into what angels are and what their activities are. But most simply stated, angels are intelligent, moralistic, spiritual creatures created by God to serve and to worship God. So like us, they were created and they are therefore a glorious part of God's creation. And the term angel is just one example or one title that's used throughout scripture to talk about uh, these messengers from God. And that's what angels means, messengers. Um, Some other examples in scripture are sons of God or holy ones. You may have heard the heavenly hosts. Uh, thrones and dominions, principalities, authorities. So you can see there's, there are lots of different titles for these these creatures. And judging by some other names that we see in Scripture, there are also different types of angels. You know, we, we see the cherubim the seraphim are, the, are, t- are two that we see in Scripture. The cherubim are referenced as the ones who guarded the, uh, guarded the, the Garden of, uh, of Eden after the fall of man, keep man out of the garden. We also see them uh, it, as described in Ezekiel 10 and Psalm 18 as being almost God's glorious chariot, living chariot, it, in, in a way where God's glory dwelt uh, among the cherubim. Over the Ark of the Covenant, for instance, the lid of the, of the covenant were actually two angels, um, statues of angels, uh, the seraphim, and they were the ones uh, on which, are uh, cherubim, which are where, they ha- where God's glory would come to dwell with his people, um, uh, with, with his people Israel. So there, are, and there's also the, the seraphim, which I just mentioned, and the, and they are the ones that, according to Isaiah six, is the only place where they're mentioned, where they're perpetually glorifying God in heaven, and is and they're in God's very presence. And like us, angels understand right and wrong. They have uh they have the ability to make moral judgments, and the and the Bible describes those those ones that make good judgments, the the, the His holy angels. And, and that's in, in many different places. Uh, Matthew uh, 25, Mark 8, Luke, and even in Acts. And they're the ones who serve God in a different variety of ways. Um, so we can see in Scripture, just as we see them playing out and doing their different activities, that's where we find out what angels do. Um, I'm going to give you a list of eight of them this morning. I'm not going to... Uh, there's many of them, different places in Scripture. We can see these uh, even in fuller form. But I just want to put out eight of them um, for us this morning. That they, they, First of all, they dispatched messages from God to humans, and including the announcement of, God's, uh, of Christ's coming and his birth in Luke chapter 2. They enacted God's judgment, and especially in Sodom and Gomorrah, we see that happening. Um, I just said in, in Isaiah 6, they, they continually worship God in his presence, Four, they, they, they carry the soul of, uh, of the saints who have died up to, up to heaven to be with God. At least they did that in, uh, in, in Luke chapter 16 when we see Lazarus, after he died, his soul was brought into Abraham's bosom by the angels. They protect God's people. And we see that in, even including Elisha when he was, when he was hunted by an, an army. Um, they showed up to, at his defense. An angel ministered to Jesus when he was in the garden, when he was suffering, uh, before he went to the cross and he was in anguish. Angels also will announce God's return when he comes back. They will come with God on the day of the Lord. And lastly, they confront Satan and his, and his demons. Uh, we see that also in the, in the fact that Michael the archangel confronted Satan over the body of Moses in Jude, in Jude uh, verse 9. So we conclude from these passages that there's lots of different ways, activities that, that angels do that they, that they serve God that worship God and they enact um, his will um, they bring praise to God they protect God's people like I just said they, they bring news about Jesus coming about his second coming as well as his first coming and they also wrestle uh, demons and demonic forces speaking of demonic forces these were once angels too that, had, that uh, made uh, the de- they had the desire to rebel against God and that they now, um, they have rebelled with Satan. In Jude chapter six, it says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, that is God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the great judgment day. So these demons, these these that were once angels, God had cast out of heaven, and, and and they now serve Satan, who himself was once an angel, until the very last day when they will finally face the, the full extent of God's wrath and consequences of, of their sin, which is in hell. So angels are like us in, in some respects, like I said, in and, 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 and maybe two, two different ways which we can see that are, like you just said, in, his, in their moral judgments and in their intelligence. But they also have some very significant differences from us. And the most obvious difference is the fact that they are incorporeal, meaning that they, they don't have a body. They're, they're bodiless. They're spiritual beings. And because they are spiritual beings, we can't see them because we're physical. We can't, we can't hear them. We, we can't touch them um, unless, of course, God gives us the ability to see into the spiritual realm, to see them, perceive them, or if he gives them a body. And it, hey, he has done so. Uh, we've seen that in Scripture over a number of times throughout Scripture that we have been able, that humans have been able to see angels. But another major difference between angels and humans is the ability to marry and procreate. And this is maybe an, an implication of the fact that they're, that they're spiritual, they don't have a physical side, but since the beginning, man and women have been given the gift of marriage and they give the gift of sex, sexual intimacy. And angels have not been given that, that same gift. And sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed among those who are in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And why we live here on earth, we enjoy that gift in the same way that, that angels do not. They do not have that gift. And the Bible also makes it evident that in some, in some ways, angels are, are superior to us. That we, Psalm chapter 8, we just said that we are a little lower than the angels, that there's, there's some sense of superiority, in, at least in a couple ways, in, in knowledge and in power. They, they have a sense of, of greater knowledge than we do. They, they know God's plan of redemption before we know about it. And, and, and they came and they were the messengers of that. They came and they told, <clears throat> the angel Gabriel came and told about, foretold John the Baptist's birth to Zechariah, his, his, uh, his father, ahead of time. And the same angel Gabriel came and, uh, and also announced the birth of Jesus Christ. So they, they know about God's gift of redemption and his plans before, before we see them, before we knew about them to some degree. But and also regarding their power, we see that they, they are more powerful than us and that scripture shows us examples in which they were able to um, strike strike people with instantaneous blindness or dumbness where they're not able to talk. And in Matthew 28, we see an interesting example where an angel touches down from heaven, descends from heaven on Easter Sunday, and causes a, a great earthquake to happen, just one angel. <clears throat> and, and, and as he is also rolling away the, uh, the stone in front of the tomb of Jesus Christ after he was resurrected from, from the dead. So we see great power that they have, that they wield. And while that's something to be marveled at, to maybe give us a sense of awe, that should not bring us to the point where we, we worship angels. And that's... that's that's one thing I want to make sure that we point out this morning is that um, we can see a lot of great illustrations about how we can serve God, how we ought to worship God, and and, and do that faithfully the way that angels do. But they are in any, any sense they should not be worshipped. We should not pray to them. We should not seek them out for any uh, for any kind of wisdom. And I say that because again, our tendency as humans to be awed by that, but. That's not a problem in itself to be awed by power and, and strength and captivated by it. But if it captivates us to the degree that it pushes us into worship of something other than God Himself, then that is sin, and that is and, and it's the sin itself that has caused us um, to inherit the curse of death, which is what I want to talk about next. Which is number three: what happens after death. Just to return to the statement that we had this morning again. When you die, God gains another angel. The statement itself proposes a couple of things. One, that at death, we will change in nature from being a human being to being an angel. And, and, and the Bible makes no such claim whatsoever. The only text that comes probably closest to this, and that some people might, might use for that, is uh, Matthew chapter 22 verses 30, verse 30 where it says, where Jesus is answering the Sadducees and he says, for in the resurrection they, that is people who are resurrected, they neither marry nor are given to marriage but are like the angels in heaven. So at face value that sounds like God may be saying, oh, we'll be like the angels, so we're gonna be angels. And that's not the case and that's why it's important to understand the context of, of what Jesus is saying. So what, what's happening here, to give you a little bit of perspective, is that the Sadducees who were among the religious and social elite of the day political elite of the day along with the Pharisees probably heard about them before the Pharisees the Sadducees were another sect of Judaism and what they did was they uh, one of the, the the big points of one of the, their contentions with the Pharisees was the fact that they did not believe in the resurrection even though the Bible is clear about the resurrection even in the Old Testament that there will be resurrection so they didn't believe in the resurrection so they come to Jesus and they say and they, and they ask him a question they, they, they put together this, this crazy and Th- this crazy uh, fable and and they try to discredit jesus by the way they do it and really what they end up doing is discrediting themselves instead they ask so this is what the question they ask they say if a man marries a woman and this man dies and he marries the brother and then he dies and so on and so forth and so on and so forth seven times whose wife will she be in the resurrection they ask, so that's, that's the question. And, and part of that is, part of that culture at the time was if, if, uh, if a woman's husband dies and then, then the brother was the one who was responsible for taking her as wife so that she, had, she was provided for, she didn't take care of, and, and, the, and, the, and the children were taken care of. So then they ask him, if that's true, then th- that seven times this woman gets married and then the resurrection happens, whose, um, whose wife is she going to be? Now, personally, I'm not not sure what you think, but, I mean, if I was like the fourth brother, I would have been running from her. I mean, I'd be like, what's going on? What is is she doing to all these guys? I would not have been around her whatsoever, (laughs) right? But anyway, Jesus does, he answered them by pointing them to the scriptures. What does God say? And he says that what God has revealed is sufficient, and that's where, where truth can be found. And this is the truth that they, they should have known, they had studied it. They, they, they knew what the scripture said, but they chose not to believe it. And what he's saying is here, that Jesus' answer is that on the resurrection day, we will be like the angels and that there will be no longer any marriage or sexual intimacy that, hap- that happens after the resurrection with our glorified bodies. So you see the difference there? We're not gonna be turned into angels. He said we will be like the, angel, like the angels in that respect. That there will be no longer any marriage. So you see the difference that's there? So now that we know we're not going to be angels, then you can put this picture out of your mind. That's not what you're going to look like. That's probably not even what angels themselves look like. So probably a lot of you are like, oh good, thank goodness. I don't have to look like that. So we're not going to look like that. So, as our statement suggests, the next thing that our statement might suggest is the fact that we won't be angels, but maybe we'll be in a state of bodiless perfection or, or they'll be, uh, we will be without bodies in, in eternity. And that's, that's our ultimate state of affairs. And the answer to that question is yes, but temporarily. And that's what I want to point out this morning is that it's, it's temporary. There's a, there's a sense in which for the Christian after death, there will be a, time, a temporary period of time after death that the soul will depart from the body, and I want to put, put this clearly here, depart from the body to be consciously present with God, enveloped in his love, enraptured in worship of their Savior while they await the consummation of the kingdom of God, the redemption of the earth, and the resurrection of our bodies. Paul says, so, says that much in Philippians chapter one. Uh, in 2 Corinthians five first, he says, to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he also says that in Philippians chapter one, about what happens after death, for to me to live is is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. But which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire t- is to depart to be with Christ, for, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So what Paul's saying here is that he's when given the choice, he says the choice is obviously better to be with god because after death i will go to be with the lord but at the same time to remain here on earth for him to remain on the earth when he was it was also a benefit to the church that he would continue to minister in the gospel for the churches it was for their benefit so he he he's convinced at the time that he it's better for him to stay because god has not yet taken him so there is a a, pl- a time in which you will be departing to be with be with the lord but I want to I want to point out a couple things in that there's the Bible nowhere supports the idea of the doctrine of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, okay. It does also does not does not support soul sleep either. Now purgatory, just to, to go to, for all of you who don't really understand what don't know what purgatory is. Maybe you've heard the term before. Um, it's that intermediate state after physical death in which the ones who are destined to go to heaven undergo some form of purification so they can achieve the holiness that's necessary to go then into heaven, okay? That's absolutely false because on the cross, Christ endured the wrath of God and the punishment of sin for all those who believe in him, for all your sins. And to believe in purgatory is actually to to deny the sufficiency of Christ's eternal work. It means that Christ's work was not powerful enough to atone for all of our sins. And so purgatory, in a sense then, they believe, must complete the task of paying off sins before they can go to heaven, which is a flat-out denial of the gospel. The only type of suffering that's going to happen after death are for those who die apart from Christ without accepting the the free gift of God's uh, grace and His eternal life. Jesus tells a story about that in Luke chapter sixteen, which I don't have time to read this morning, um, but I would would encourage you to look at it. It it tells a story about a beggar named Lazarus, um, who lives in deplorable conditions here on earth, um, and after death, he was brought into the luxuries of heaven and paradise. And then we see also on the other side that there's an unnamed rich man who lived in, who wanted for nothing. He lived in wealth and, and and posh. Nate, he, he lived in a posh place while here on earth but then when he died he woke up in hell so we see that there is there's a suffering that happens the, the agonies of, of hell are experienced by those who die apart for Christ and it's not a fantasy like the way purgatory is where it happens just for a short period of time it happens forever and it happens even after Christ returns from, from for his church when all people will be raised from that. all bodies will be raised and our soul and our body will be united with the glorified body for those in Christ and for those apart from Christ they will be brought back together only then to be thrown into the eternality of torment in hell. So, but I want to make plain that I don't want you to hear that and then wonder about the condition of your soul this morning. Don't leave this morning without turning to Jesus Christ. If you're not not a Christian this morning, I want you to understand and to know the love of God that he has for you and that was displayed on the cross and that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in our place, it frees us from the fear of death, from the penalty of sin, and from the reality of hell itself. So please don't leave without this morning wondering what your condition is. Moving on, I want to move on now to soul sleep. How... What does the Bible say about soul sleep? Well, it's not at all found in Scripture. You're not going to find anything that has to do with soul sleep. And soul sleep, if, uh, proponents of this believe that after death, the soul will leave the body and will either be extinguished entirely or it will go into an unconscious state like sleeping. And along, I think along with Philippians chapter 1, which we just read, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think the proverbial nail in the coffin is in Revelation chapter 6. In this passage, we see John, uh, the Apostle John, is given insights into what, what's going on in heaven. He sees heaven because of God has given him that insight, and he sees into the future. And what he actually sees while, while he sees heaven is that there, he sees the, uh, the souls of the martyrs, those who have died because of their faith in Jesus Christ, and they're awake and they're completely conscious. In fact, it says that they are crying out in a loud voice before God's throne. They say, "O sovereign Lord, holy one and true, how long before you would judge and avenge the blood of those on earth who dwell on the earth?" So you can see that they are they are awake, and they're and not only are they awake, but they're they are in the presence of God, and they are calling out. and When will you when will you return to earth? When will you set all things right? So there's a definitely time that happens between after death and between the resurrection where we will see, we will be all those who have died will be go with God and be in heaven, but it's temporary. And the gospel tells us this much. The gospel is that good news that tells us that, that, that though sin has distorted the Imago Dei, which we talked about just a little bit ago, God has dealt with the problem of sin and that God has brought us the gift of eternal life and we can see the full real, the realization of that on the last day when he returns. As one theologian put it, he said that Christians not only look for, forward to life after death, but we look forward to life after life after death. We eagerly await that blessed hope of the coming of God when we will see the multi dimensional implications of God's redemptive plan for the universe, for his plan for his people, including the resurrection of our, of our very bodies. Not resuscitation but actual full resurrection. Our resurrection will actually mirror Jesus' resurrection. We will be like him, as it says in 1 John chapter three. We will inherit something that we've never experienced before, that there's no category for here on earth, which is incorruptible, uh, incorruptible physicality. There's no category for that here on earth. Because why? Because what we see around us is the opposite. We see physicality but we see it all falling apart. And that is because of sin. It says that for the in Romans chapter 6 it says for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Despite despite what any world religion or anybody else would tell you, death is not something to be embraced as a, as another aspect of life, but it's something that should be feared that it is, the, it is an enemy of life, it is an enemy of God because it's a cessation of life, the life that God had created and called good in the very beginning. And death ought to be fearful for those who don't have faith in Jesus Christ in the same way that a murderer on death row should fear the capital punishment. But for all those who believe in Jesus Christ, He has freed us from the hopelessness of our condition, and He has freed us from the bondage of sin by sending Jesus to die in our place. We will see glorification of our bodies. We have full assurance as Christians that we will be healed spiritually, and also we will attain full physical healing and and renewal on the last day when Jesus returns for His church. And that we will have a, a physical resurrected body in the same way that Jesus has a resurrected body, that His resurrection guaranteed our resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to close uh, this is on this verse, on these verses. And he writes this to the church in Corinth at the time to dispel the doubts and the fears and to reinforce the confidence that we have in Jesus' sacrifice for, our, for us in our place. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, For as by a man death came, by a man comes also resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all have died, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. First, Christ is the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted, that God himself is accepted from that, who put all things in subjection under himself. When all things are subjected to him, then the son will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. As Christians, we look forward to the day when God will be all in all. And we will see all of creation restored to paradise. And we will see that death will finally be trampled under Christ's feet. We will see judgment come and fall in, in a just way on Satan, on, on, on his demons, and on the wicked, unrepentant hearts. And we will see heaven, finally, we'll see heaven in all of its glories and we'll be freed from this sin that, that separated us from God, we will be with. We will be with God. We will be fully sanctified. That means we will be holy, holy, completely holy. And then we will finally look into the face of Jesus Christ Himself, and we'll see Him. We will see Him face to face, and He'll finally say, "Well done," and He will embrace us in our fully restored, incorruptible, glorified bodies. Do you have that hope this morning? That's that's the question. Is that do you have the hope? that one day you will see Christ, you don't have to fear, you don't have to fear death, but you can be with Christ. I pray that you do. I pray that you do this morning, that you turn, if you have not, you will turn from, from your sin to Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, the truth of your word that it can be known, it's not been kept a mystery from us, the gospel is going forth and is being proclaimed and hearts are, are changing and, being, and lives are being um, brought into eternal life. And, and that uh, we can live in hope in the purpose of knowing that one day we will have a glorified body, glorified uh, person entirely, and be with you forever. And that's, that's what we look forward to. I pray that would uh, sink into our hearts this morning and that uh, we would turn from our sins, that um, people would be, that we all would be changed uh, into a greater degree of glory here on earth, but as we wait the final day, we'll be with you for eternity. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.